It's time for the What in the Podcast. On tonight's show, we're going to talk about the Superstition Mountains. We're going to talk about their formation, their history, the superstition behind the Superstition Mountains, the people who are disappearing in the Superstition Mountains, and the oral traditions of the Native American people in the area that make the Superstition Mountains what it is. Welcome to episode 117 of... What in the podcast? Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington and Adriana Guido. And Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Hello and welcome to the What in the Podcast. Hello, hello. Hiya. I love your intros. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you ladies doing tonight? Upright and mobile. Barely conscious and not as mobile as I used to be. <laughs> the ladies again are Tracy Lynn Hernandez and Adriana Camito, my co-host, my myself and Kent Whittington. We have decided we're going to do an extra episode this week, um, only so that we have an extra episode in the in the bin because we had to take some time off uh, a couple weeks back. Because life, life sucks and happens. Yes, it does. As long as life keeps happening, we're on the right side of it. Mm-hmm. But we're not quitting. We just keep we keep plodding along. Lovely. So, a couple things before we start. If you haven't, you might you might have noticed that uh, there's been a change. On our podcast, if you look at the logo, we changed our logo. We did. I spent uh, last night working on a new design, which and I like a lot better than the old design. I, I like the old design. Another one with the old design. I mean, it's got I'm that creepy steal vibe. It from my Facebook picture, like you did. I thought you already did. No, I haven't. Okay. I don't get on Facebook anymore. <laughs> hey, you can you can use it. I have no problem with that. But the new design is kind of kind of Scooby Doo ish, kind of kind of gives you that what in the feel because of the faces of the, of us because they are based off of of us, of course. They're caricatures. Yep. Scooby Doo type characters. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's fun. Scooby Doo ish. And along with that, I've also made merch available. Merchandise, merchandising. So Sorry, if anybody's interested right. in that. Um, I will provide a link. Actually, I already did provide a link. If you go to the go to our Facebook page, there is a link that will take you to our Redbubble uh, website, where you will find. Sorry, our Redbubble page, not my website. I don't own it. But, <laughs> <laughs> we knew what but, you meant. Yeah, but anyway, there's the page there, and you can find it. All sorts of merchandise that I've set up for this particular design, and all the proceeds for that will, of course, go to the podcast. The things we need to do, like. Trips, trips we need to make, things we need to upgrade, all sorts of good stuff like that. So equipment we 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 hope to save for, so, so we can be heard <laughs> properly. Yeah, yeah, so we can hear, be heard properly. That's another thing I want to talk about. Last week's, we uh, decided to try the uh, voice recorder again. We used Tracy's phone because uh, for some reason, voice recorder on my computer 
work? stops Does working after about two minutes. But it works great on Tracy's phone. So we tried that. And unfortunately, I don't know if it, it was the like distance or block. But yeah, I can barely be heard. For that, I apologize. I hope you did enjoy the podcast just the same, mm -hmm. though. Um, heard a lot of positive things about it. Thanks mm -hmm. for those who do listen and, and participate and let us know. Thank you for telling us how much you enjoyed that. Um, and I'm rambling, so let's get on with it. Yay, rambling. <laughs> What are we talking about tonight? Legends of the Superstition Mountains. Mm, what do you know about the Superstition Mountains off the top of your head? Part of the Appalachian Mountain Train. Mm -hmm. Things you don't want to do in the mountains, like whistle at night. Okay, whistle in the mountains. Wear red. Walk out at night. Yeah, that's about all I can remember right now. Okay, what about you, Andrew? Well, we already covered this, the, whatchamacallit mine, the Lost Dutchman mine. We did talk about the Lost Dutchman there. mine, yeah. Um, isn't there Long UFO pause. spot? No, UFO. <laughs> okay. No, no, I, I, I don't know, but that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to talk about it and get into it. I don't remember. see what we, pops up. I've done reading on it, but I don't recall because it was so many years ago. I don't have the the recall I used to have when I you know read something and I retain it. It's, it's just mm -hmm, gone. Mm -hmm. I miss being able to remember things. That's okay. We're all getting to that point. Yeah, at know. least, at least you know you're too poor to pay attention sometimes. At least I still know who I am and who you are <laughs> and and why the heck I'm here tonight. At least, so yay! Let's get into it. So, how did the Superstition Mountains get their name? Um, well, and why and do more hikers actually disappear there than anywhere else? That's something we didn't talk about. This is true. Yeah. This, yeah. Apparently that's something here. Well, that, if you think <clears throat> about where Karma was talking about her triangle of girls, that's technically the, the, the footer of part of the Superstition Mountains or yeah. part of the Appalachian Mountains. The Appalachians, maybe. The Superstitions are actually in Arizona. Okay, proper. wrong part, wrong part. Sorry. I'm awake. I swear. I was, I was say, something, something didn't See, sound I'm, right when I'm you said Appalachians. I'm going to superstitions up at, at um, New England. Because my brain is like, you know, hi, I'm a blonde. Tracy had a Tracy. brain fart. It's okay. I am a Tracy. My name is Blonde. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you said Appalachians. I'm like, what? <laughs> but I kind of went with it for a second, see uh, where you were going. So, you know, hi, I'm a Daffy Doofy. And, yeah, that um, is something we should look into, though, because there is some stuff there that goes on. We can get into it. But right now... Right. Well, then, then take back my right mind. Now. Don't walk out at night. Don't wear red. Don't actually, some of, that, some of that stuff actually does apply to this, too. Oh, okay. I have a, a I pattern believe. for a little mini, mini moth bat. <laughs> East Coast. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that tangent. <laughs> I got a pattern for it today. Well, I'm glad. I, I'd be happy to see it when it's done. I don't even know where the pattern is right now, but I was <laughs> you getting it. Today. You've got it, Somebody but you don't know where it is. It but you've got it, yes. It's in the cloud. <laughs> so anyway, next to the Grand Canyon, the Superstition Mountain Range is the most photographed and painted landmark in Arizona. Um, so where does the name Superstition, where does the Superstition portion, sorry, of its name come into play? Um, there's a few different versions of when and how it was named. Um, experts believe the Superstition Mountains were formed more than 18 million years ago by volcanic at activity. Sounds about right. Yeah, The mountains were once part of a large caldera, which is, of course, a volcanic feature formed by the collapse of a volcano into itself, making it a large crater instead. 
Yes, when it spews, the cone disappears. Uh -huh. And then when the, the magma channel cools beneath it, it sinks further. It yep. looks like, like a meteor struck it or something. That's so what this, they mean by caldera, right? Yep. So Some caldera is so water. Yep, so this volcano turned into a caldera and then resurged to form a massive mountain. Cool. Millions of years of wind and rain have eroded the peaks to its present, the way it is now. Uh, according to George Johnson, who was the president emeritus of the Superstition Mountain Museum, the uh, mountain was called many different names by a handful of different cultures over the years. The Crooked Top Mountain, Thunder Mountain, and Mountain of Foam are a few examples. Local Native Americans were described as superstitious about the mountain, but it was the local farmers in the 1860s who tabbed this mountain with its final namesake. Okay. So through the Pima Indians, the farmers of the Salt River Valley had heard stories about strange sounds, people who disappeared, mysterious deaths, and an overall fear of the mountain, Johnson said. Uh, this influenced the farmers to believe that the Pimas were superstitious about this particular mountain, and thus the name Superstition Mountain was born. I'm sorry. Not sorry. you with the death wish. Okay, I, I say, I'll stop talking, but hey. <laughs> I said that damn thing has a death wish. Wasn't talking about it. Okay, you. okay. So, of course, we can't skip over the legend of the Lost Dutchman's gold. Uh, which is another ingredient to the Superstition Mountain Mystique. Many people believe there's a fortune to be found, and they're willing to risk everything to be the one to finally find it. I explain why all the hikers disappear, too. Probably. I mean, if you look at uh, topographical and 3D, not 3D, um, yeah, is it uh, space 3D imaging where they, they can get the, the, the below-ground cave network caught? Mm -hmm. so That's are. part of the, the cave network chain. Yeah, that's true. Mm. So, where was I? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Here's so the of the page. They, they, they can't, okay, we didn't, they can't do anything with it. And if they do find the treasure anyway. Yeah. Um, Superstition Wilderness is one of the eight congressionally designated wilderness zones, which prohibits people from disturbing, leaving, or taking anything from the preserved areas. There is a strict leave-no-trace policy within the nearly 200,000 acres of protected superstition wilderness. Um, the mountains have certainly had their share of casualties, too. Uh, he says, uh, Johnson says there do seem to be more disappearances here than on other mountains. On average, about four to five hikers die each year. In addition to the severely rugged nature of the terrain consisting of sharp drop-offs, cliffs, and deep canyons, hikers can also encounter extreme changes in temperature, harsh winds, and dangerous wildlife. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Even the Forest Service said that it's the most rugged within the United States wilderness system. Mm. But, but explorers... Sorry. Hi, dear. <laughs> I thought I turned it off. <laughs> No, but thank you for reminding me. There we <laughs> See, go. Okay. I am not the only one. <laughs> Mine was off. I even denied a phone call. See? 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 <laughs> so, despite all the dangers, explorers, they trek on regardless. You know, they, they still keep coming. You know, there's golden in our hills, basically, yep. and they want to find that treasure. So, no matter what they tell them, people still go in unprepared, too. Mm -hmm. 
not very smart. Mm -hmm. uh, Johnson went on to give several examples of individuals who went missing, some of which were never found. A few years ago, there were three guys, I believe they were from Utah, that went missing. They weren't found for months until one day another hiker happened to discover the skeletal remains of the three men, still fully clothed, shoes and all, just clothes and bones. Of course, those kinds of stories only heighten the mystery and the intrigue that are associated with this range of the mountains. Whether you feel these hikers are adventurous, gullible, reckless, or superstitious, the fact remains that there are a great number of tragedies linked to this mountain and its wilderness should be revered and respected. And if you determine to defy the danger, by all means, do your homework. If you're fortunate enough, you may even get to meet Mr. George Johnson at the Superstition Mountain Museum while studying up on the subject. So if you go, talk to him, because he's going to tell you don't go. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and a, why? As a hiking novice, I already know that with the temperature changes, you're going to want really good boots, mm -hmm. walking sticks, um, emergency blankets. Oh yeah, I mean, dress in multiple layers. Mm -hmm. But make sure they're all lightweight and breathable. Right, right. Because you're you're talking about a desert, which mm -hmm. is going to be hot during the day, hot during cold the day, at night. very cold at night, <laughs> freezing temperatures. So we're not fremen. We're we're not on the ruckus. We don't know. know how to deal with this. We're That's not. right. We're not. We're in still suits. <laughs> and dehydration happens a lot faster than you think. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. So would one of you like to talk about the legend of the lost Dutchman mine, Adrian? You brought it up. She says no. She's nodding no. <laughs> okay, how about you, Tracy? Would you like to Sure, about why not? Okay. I am not participating. Well, I'm participating, but I am not so reading. So you better be participating. You're here. We hear you. No, I mean, I'm not <laughs> reading tonight. I'm having a hard time with my eyes tonight. Drink some of your coffee. Put some blood sugar in. Or drink something that's not sugary. And take some blood sugar. I got nothing else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just See, here. I'm not the only one that's having issues. <laughs> We're, we're human. Hello. We sound like we've been drinking, but we haven't. We I are promise. totally sober. Every sober, everybody. I can talk really. I slurred my words. Can't say just sober, now. sober. Apparently. Apparently, yeah. I also can't walk a straight line when I'm sober or drunk. My last drink was Monday, and I ended up passing it to someone else in the house because it tasted like flavored static. But anywho, it was a seltzer. It was a hard seltzer, a watermelon flavored hard seltzer. It tasted like static. So I added some St. Germain to it because elderberry. Well, I know what static sounds like, like, but static. it actually tasted, tasted, tasted static. static. I added cranberry juice to it. Is that like, licking like water something static. that's got static electricity? Like licking a nine-volt battery? How about, how about licking an <laughs> over-static cat or watching it lick itself? And go, Why would you lick a cat? I wouldn't. <laughs> no. I got zapped by the cat when I pet him earlier, so I just, it's weird. Yeah, so I haven't been drinking because, you know, I'm such an alcohol abuser. I had to pass it to someone else because I didn't want to abuse the alcohol. I'm just glad she's not holding the stick to the train right now. <laughs> Even though we did derail a little bit there. <laughs> okay, anyway. What's the the trolley? of the lost Dutchman mine. I didn't call you nothing. <laughs> the lost Dutchman's gold mine is, according to legend, a rich gold mine hidden in the southwestern United States. The location is generally believed to be Superstition Mountains near Ap Apache Junction, mm. east of Phoenix, Arizona. There have been many stories about how to find the mine, and each year people search for the mine. Some have died on this search. The mine is named after the German immigrant Jacob Waltz, 
approximately 1810 to 1891, who reportedly discovered it in the 19th century and kept its location secret. Dutchman was a common American term for German, quote, Dutch, being the English bastardization of the German word Deutsch. Deutsch, sorry. Deutsch. Deutsch. I can say the word, I swear, without spitting my denture across Most the Most people say Deutsch. Yeah, I Whatever. Deutsch. So, yeah. yeah. Anywho. Anyway, it's not a reference to the Dutch people. No, it's just my inability to actually say the word, because I should know that, you know, Mm-hmm. Deutsch instead of douche. Well, Deutsch but, sounds a lot better than douche. Well, I speak French, so it goes to... to yeah, anywho, I know, la, I know. La Monique. Anywho, um, <clears throat> the Lost Dutchman's is perhaps the most famous lost mine in American history. The Arizona place uh, name expert Bird Granger wrote, as of 1977, the Lost Dutchman's story had been printed or cited at least six times more often than any other two fairly well-known tales. The story of Captain Kidd's lost treasure and the story of the lost Pegleg mine in California. People have been seeking the lost Dutchman's mine since at least 1892, while according to the estimate, to one estimate, 9,000 people annually make some, tre- some effort to locate the lost Dutchman's mine. Former Arizona cur- Attorney General Robert K. Sorry, Attorney General Robert K. Corbin is among those who have looked for the mine. That, come back up here, silly computer. Uh, but that's other, not the only mine. No. Uh, other Lost Dutchman's Mines, uh, Robert Blair wrote, there have been at least four legendary Lost Dutchman gold mines in America's West, including the famed Superstition Mine of Jacob Waltz. One of the Lost Dutchman's Mines is said to be in Colorado, another in California, and two are said to be located in Arizona. Uh, tales of these other Lost Mines can be traced to at least the 1870s. The earliest Lost, lost Dutchman Mine in Arizona was said to have been near Wickenburg. About 180 kilometers, 110 miles northwest of the Superstition Mountains, a Dutchman was allegedly discovered dead in the desert near Wickenburg in the 1870s, alongside saddlebags filled with gold. Blair suggested that fragments of this legend have, become, have perhaps become attached to the mythical mine of Jacob Waltz. So we got a, a, a body with sacks of gold, and uh, they're assuming that maybe that's where the legend started. Then. Could be, and that's what it sounded like there. But with four of them, and you know, just to name every German man that's running a mine, a Dutchman. Well, you gotta also understand the way the legend goes. Jacob Waltz would go out in the desert, be gone for days at a time, days, weeks, or months, and then come back. Come in. back loaded down with gold. Yep. And then go out again, and again, days, weeks, Rinse months pass. Yep. Come back more gold. Yeah. So anyway, um, stories about the mine, which I might have already brought up. Let's let's see what happens here. <laughs> uh, Granger wrote the fact that uh, that quote fact and fiction blend in these tales end quote, but that there are three main elements to the story. They are first tales of lost Apache gold or Doctor Thomas Doctor Thorne's mine. Second tales about the lost Dutchman's and third stories about soldiers lost gold vein. The most complete version of the Lost Dutchman story incorporates all three legends. Blair argued that there are kernels of truth at the heart of each of these three main stories, though the popular story is often badly garbled from the actual account. Other theories have materialized that speculate the mine is buried at the bottom of the Apache or Roosevelt Lake. In 1977, Granger identified 62 variants of Lost Dutchman story. Some of the variations are minor, but others were substantial passing the story in a very different light from the other versions. 
Taking your breath, taking a degree. There we go. Lost a patch of gold on Dr. Thorne's story. Uh, in this story, actually two interconnected stories, members of the Apache tribe are said to have a rich gold mine located in the Superstition Mountains. Famed Apache Geronimo is sometimes mentioned in relation to the story. Most variants of the story, the, uh, sorry, in most variants of the story, I can read, a family man called Miguel Peralta discovered the mine and began mining and mining the gold, only to be attacked or massacred by the Apache in, uh, in about 1850 in the supposed Peralta massacre. Years later, a man called Dr. Thorne treats an ailing wounded Apache, often alleged to be a chieftain, and is rewarded the trip to the rich gold mine. He's blindfolded and taken by a securitist group and is allowed to take as much gold as he can carry before again being escorted blindfolded from the site by the Apache. Thorne is said to be either unwilling or unable to relocate the mine. That sounds a lot like the Grand Canyon story. I don't remember the details or, or who was involved, but there was a, a guy that was able to have a guide who took him up into the, the, the down into the yeah. canyon. Sorry. Yeah. And Where you had was, to meet the, the giants or. Yeah, there was an yeah. opening in the canyon, but he was he was blindfolded, blindfolded and taken back and forth and running through. And then when he came them. back, he couldn't find it again yep. afterwards when he came back on his own. So that has a similar ring. It does. Yeah. Which which, if you think about it, if you want someone to not know where the heck they are. That's what you would do. Uh -huh. Just just a thing, you know? Yeah. Um, the truth about the Peralta mine. Like most, most likely because Pedro de Peralta had been a Spanish governor in New Mexico in the, in the 1600s, the family name of Peralta was an inspiration for a number of legends in the American Southwest. James Rivas tried to assert that the Peralta family had a Spanish land grant and a barony granted by the King of Spain, which included a huge swath of Arizona and New Mexico, including the Superstition Mountains. The Peralta Massacre is a legend that Apache supposedly ambushed the mining expedition the Peralta family sent to the mountains. Some carved stones in the area referred to the Peralta stone, referred as Peralta stones, and Spanish text and crude maps on them are considered by some big clues in the location of the Peralta family gold mine in Superstition Mountains. Although others believe the stones to be modern fakes. <clears throat> a lack of historical records leaves uncertainty as to whether the Peralta family had ever possession of the land or mines in or near the Superstition Mountains. Blair insisted that the Peralta portion of the story is unreliable writing. The operation of a gold mine in superstitions by the Peralta family is a contrivance of the 20th century writers. A man named Miguel Peralta and his family did operate a successful mine in the 1860s, but near Valencia, California, not Arizona. The mine was quite profitable, earning approximately $35,000 in less than one year. Blair described this as an unusually good return for such a small gold mine in such a relatively brief period. That is, especially considering the era when that when that was mined. We're talking uh, what the 1800s? 18... 1860s, 1860s, yeah. So thirty five thousand by today's money, we're talking probably millions. somewhere in the millions. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. As of 1975, ruins of the Peralta mine are still standing. However. The uh, Peralta mine eventually became unprofitable, and after the money was gone, Miguel Peralta turned to fraud. Dr. George M. Willing Jr. paid Peralta twenty thousand for mining rights in an enormous swath of land, about three million acres, or twelve thousand kilometers squared, in south uh, southern Arizona and New Mexico, based on a deed originally granted by the Spanish Empire in the eighteenth century. Trouble came after Willing learned that the deed was entirely bogus. Despite his efforts, Willing was never able to recover the money. That he gave to Peralta. The land, pardon me, the land grant was the basis of the James Rivas Arizona land swindle, 
Revis became the, the willingest partner and continued to try to prove the authentic, authenticity of the land grant for years after Willing's death. That's just, I don't know. That's, you're talking, you make $35,000 in a mine. I'm, I'm sure you had to pay people off and everything, the miners mm -hmm. and whatnot, but you made a lot of money. And then you have drink to go, it away. Drink it away <laughs> you know, or whatever you did, spend yep. money and then swindle somebody else in land deeds to get and you away from the, the uh, oh we done screwed up how yeah how much do you have to screw up to lose all that money like that by probably not making that much money and just the books yeah just guessing still though that's a lot of money um let's see blair argued that this is peralta's story as as known to arizona residents was eventually incorporated in the lost dutchman story in a severely distorted version following the renewed interest of Lost Dutchman's mine in 1930s. Since James Rebus, the Baron of Arizona, was convicted of fraud when the Peralta family genealogy and other documents to support the land grant and a barony associated with the land were determined to be forgeries, it also raises the questions about the original purchase of the land grant by Dr. George M. Willing Jr. The transaction had supposedly occurred at a primitive campsite to the southeast of Prescott without the benefit of typical do documentation. Instead of being instead of a notarized deed, the conveyance was recorded on a piece of greasy camp paper bearing the signature of several witnesses. Willing died in 1874, before he had been through before he had been a thorough investigation of the documents, or the opportunity to cross-examine him on the stands, as was later done with Rebus. The truth about Dr. Thorne. Another detail which casts doubt on the story is the fact that, according to Blair, there never was a Dr. Thorne, the employee of the army or indeed the federal government in the 1860s. According to Blair, the origin of the story can be traced to a doctor named Thorne who was a private practice in New Mexico in the 1860s. Thorne claimed that he was taken captive by the Navajo in 1854 and that during his captivity, he had discovered a rich gold vein. Thorne related, that, yeah, related his claims to three US soldiers in about 1856 and the three soldiers set out to find the gold without success. Over the decades, the tale was gradually absorbed in the Lost Dutchman story. And just a quick correction, it was 1858. Sorry. Not 56. 1858, sorry. That's all right. Just Reading want to be, ac just want to be accurate. <laughs> Reading is so much fun and fundamental. Um, the Lost Dutchman's story. This tale involves two German men, Jacob Waltz and Jacob Weiser. However, Blair argued there was a strong likelihood that there never was a second man named, named Weiser, but rather a single person named Waltz was, over the years, turned into two men as the legend of the Dutchman's mind evolved. Blair contended that the story can be divided into hawk and dove versions, versions, depending on whether the Germans are said to behave violently or peacefully. In most versions of the tale, Jacob Waltz locates a rich mine in the Superstition Mountains, and in many versions of the story, they rescue or help a member of the Peralta family and are rewarded with being told the location of the mine. Waltz is attacked and wounded by a marauding Apache, but survives at least long enough to tell a man called Dr. Walker about the mine. Walt is also said to make a deathbed confession to Julia Thomas and draws or describes a crude map to the gold mine. John okay. D. Wilburn, in his book Dutchman's Last Ledge, sorry, Dutch, Dutchman's Lost Ledge of Gold, 1990, wrote that the, bill, the bulldog gold mine near, Ariz, near Goldfield, Arizona, is very well fits the description of Jacob Waltz, sorry, that Jacob Waltz gave his location of the lost mine. Furthermore, Willborn stated that the geology indicates that there is no gold in the Superstition Mountains, which are indigenous in, in, uh -huh. in, in origin. I can read the word, I swear to the one. 
However, in some versions, the mine is actually a cache put there by the Peraltas. The processing of commercial information is complete. Back to the show. Okay, so should I go ahead and do the rest? Uh, not the rest, I'm sorry, the next part of it? <laughs> no, not the rest, but yes, the next part. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, do it all. Sometimes I feel like I am, but that's oh, another gosh. story. No, 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 no. You, you all know better. <laughs> so let's talk about the story of the soldiers lost cold vein. So in yet another version of the tale, two or more U.S. Army soldiers are said to have discovered a vein of almost pure gold in or near the Superstition Mountains. The soldiers are alleged to have presented some of the gold, but to have been killed or to have vanished soon after. I wouldn't be surprised if that were true. Um, you know, you get a, you get a, you you strike a vein. Suddenly, everybody's wanting to know where your claim is. Yep. They want they want they want your gold. So you know, people kill for if that. You, yeah, if you disappear, well, you know, it's oh, here well. on the desert. You may never get found again. Yep. Uh, mines collapse. People yep. disappear. So this particular account is usually dated to about 1870, and according to Blair, the story may have its roots in the efforts of three U.S. soldiers to locate gold in an area of New Mexico based on an allegedly true story related to them by Dr. Thorne of New Mexico. See above, yes. <laughs> as we've already talked about. So Blair called evidence of the historical Jacob Waltz and suggested that additional evidence supports the core elements of the story. The Waltz claimed to have discovered or at least heard the story of a rich gold vein or cash. But Blair suggested that this core story was distorted in subsequent retellings, comparing the many variants of the Lost Dutchman's story to the game of Chinese Whispers, where the original account is distorted, of course, in multiple retellings of the story. Yep. Uh, so there was indeed a Jacob Waltz who immigrated to the U.S. from Germany. The earliest, oh, is it Walter Volts? Would be Volts if see. I'm saying it wrong. But, you no, know. no, I'm just, you know, the, it just hit me like Waltz? No, that's not right. It's like Wagner is actually spelled yes. with a W. So, anyway, um, so he immigrated from Germany. The earliest documentation of him in the U.S. is an 1848 affidavit in which Volts declared himself to be about 38 years old. A man named a man called Jacob Voltz was born in September of 1810 in Wurttemberg. Uh, Blair suggested that this Voltz could be the same Voltz who later came to be regarded as the legendary Dutchman, and that he Americanized the spelling of his family name. So maybe it is Voltz then. Could be. Uh, not that that matters one way or another. <laughs> we know what we're talking about. That's the important thing. Note the tombstone pictured show uh, shows birth as the year 1808, though, in the documentation. Uh, Waltz relocated to Arizona in the 1860s and stayed in the territory for most of the rest of his life. He pursued mining and prospecting, but seems to have had little luck with either. An alternate view, which better fits the lost mine legend, is that he periodically appeared with large amounts of gold, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Sterling legend by Este Conister reports that a Jacob Walser sold 250000 in gold to the U.S. Mint during the 1880s and had 1500 when he died in 1891. 
that's a lot to, to just bring it on all on your own. Yes, it is. That's quite a bit. So in 1870, Waltz had a, a homestead of about 160 acres or 0.65 kilometers squared near Phoenix where he operated a farm. There was a catastrophic flood in Phoenix in 1891, and Waltz's farm was one of many that was devastated. Afterwards, Waltz fell ill. He was rumored to have contracted pneumonia during the flooding. He died on October 25th, 1891, after having been nursed by an acquaintance named Julia Thomas. Uh, she's, usually, she's usually described as a quadroon. Why that's important, I don't know. It's just part of the part of the story. Yep. Uh, Waltz was buried in Phoenix at what is now called the Pioneer and Military Memorial Park. Blair had little doubt that Waltz related to Thomas the location of an alleged gold mine as early as September 1st, 1892. The Arizona Enterprise was reporting on the efforts of Thomas and several others to locate the lost mine, whose location was told to her by Waltz. After this was unsuccessful, Thomas and her partners were reported to be selling maps to the mine for $7 each. So here we go again. Which is highway <laughs> robbery at that point. Yeah. That was a lot of money considering, you know, the 1800s. Mm -hmm. But hey, it's a chance to, to, to earn the lost treasures. <clears throat> this is the gold. only map I have. That's right. $7 to get where everyone else is getting. <laughs> And if you're or, in California, you have a map to the Highwood Stars, I'm sure. Or, or, or each one's a separate map, so you're going to a slightly different place mm -hmm. that is not the right place no matter what. So now we'll talk about the death of Adolf Ruth. Uh, were, were it not for the death of amateur explorer and treasure hunter Adolf Ruth, the story of the Lost Dutchman's Mine would probably have been little more than a footnote in Arizona history as one of hundreds of lost mines rumored to be in the American West. Ruth disappeared while searching for the mine in the summer of 1931. His skull, with two holes in it identified as bullet holes, was mm -hmm. recovered about six months after he vanished. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dental records, you think? Probably. Well, I don't know. I don't when know. When did how, they start how, doing dental records? Do you remember? I don't know. That's something I don't remember. Look it up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was recovered six months after he vanished. And the story made national news thus sparking widespread interest in the Lost Dutchman's mine. In the story that echoes some of the earlier tales, Ruth's son, Erwin C. Ruth, was said to have learned of the Peralta mine from a man called Pedro Gonzalez. According to the story, in about 1912, Erwin C. Ruth gave some legal aid to Gonzalez, saving him from almost certain imprisonment. In gratitude, Gonzalez told Irwin about the Peralta mine in the Superstition Mountains and gave him some antique maps of the site. Gonzalez claimed to be the descendant uh, from the Peralta family on his mother's side. It's kind of funny how everybody's got a map. Yep. <laughs> and they're all related to the mine in some form or other. Irwin passed, and, and they all give it to him in gratitude. We have an answer. Okay, what's the answer? The answer. The first use of dental record, dental identification was in 66 AD during the Roman Emperor. Claudius the Emperor was married to Agrippina, who proved to be a very jealous woman. So we can safely say that they probably could yes, determine could probably it was his skull from dental records. It probably wasn't as common then, but it was probably... Well, we're talking that. 1931. Uh, when oh, yeah, his head showed up with yeah, the bullets in it? Yeah. Then, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. So anyway, the elder Ruth had fallen and badly broken several bones while seeking the Lost Peg Lake Mine in California. 
He had metal pins in his leg and used a cane to help him walk. In June of 1931, Ruth set out to locate the Lost Peralta mine. After traveling to the region, Ruth stayed several days at the ranch of Tex Barkley to outfit his expedition. Barkley repeatedly urged Ruth to abandon his search for the mine. Okay, this guy's thinking. Yes. Um, <clears throat> he wanted to abandon his search because the terrain of the Superstition Mountains was treacherous even for experienced outdoorsmen, let alone for the 66-year-old Ruth in the heat of the Arizona summer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're an old man. You're going to go out in the desert. Yeah. And do what? See the one with the bullet holes in his head? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. not how he died. He didn't <laughs> fall in a ravine or break his leg or back or whatever. Somebody killed him. Yeah, but, but this... this. Uh, but he had already fallen in the ravine, broken everything. And Tex Barkley told him, you know, you need to be outfitted better before you decide to do this. So Ruth ignored Barkley's advice, of course, and set out for a two-week stint in the mountains. Ruth didn't return as scheduled, and no trace of him could be found after a brief search. In December of 1931, the Arizona Republic reported on the recent discovery of a human skull in the Superstition Mountains. To determine the skull was Ruth's, it was examined by Dr. Alex Herdlika, a well-respected anthropologist who was given several photos of Ruth, along with Ruth's dental records. As Kurt Gentry wrote, Dr. Herdlika positively identified the skull as that of Adolf Ruth. He further stated after examining the two holes in the skull that it appeared that a shotgun or high-powered rifle had been fired through the head at almost point-blank range, making the small hole when the bullet entered and the large hole when it exited. Of course. That's just kind of rude. I'm sorry, but yeah. high-powered shotgun, point-blank range, overkill much? Well, maybe that means he did find something. Could be. Um, and I, I would be guessing that that just is just off the top of my head. I haven't gone further into it, but I'd just be guessing that the small hole is in the back of the head. Quite probable. Which means he was probably shot at point blank range from behind, which means he wasn't alone. Oh, well, I guess we'll have to read and find out. Huh? Yep. In January of 1932, human remains were discovered about three quarters of a mile or 1.21 kilometers from where the skull had been found. The other remains had been scattered by scavengers. They were undoubtedly Ruth's. Many of Ruth's personal effects were found at the scene, including a pistol, not missing any shells. So didn't, they, didn't use they got it by surprise from the them. sound of it. And the metal pins used to mend the broken bones, of course, were still there too. But the map to the Peralta mine was said to be missing. You know, if the pins in his leg were there, they could have identified him that way. But yeah, probably. Sorry. But I found the skull first. My head <laughs> just first doesn't work right some days. That's I swear. A, that's all right. Tantalizingly, though, Ruth's cheek—sorry, his checkbook—not his cheekbook, but his checkbook—was <laughs> also recovered and proved to contain a note written by Ruth, wherein he claimed to have discovered the mine and gave detailed directions. Ruth ended his note with the phrase "Veni, vidi, vici." Mm -hmm. I saw I conquered. Authorities in Arizona did not convene a criminal inquest regarding Ruth's death. They argued that Ruth had probably succumbed to thirst or heart disease. Yeah, that's what put the <laughs> bullet in his head, right? <laughs> not the bullet through his head, but that, yeah. Though, as Gentry wrote, one official went so far as to suggest that Adolf Ruth might have committed suicide. Yeah, well, that's why there were no bullets missing from his gun. Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. Or his gun missing. Oh, no, his gun wasn't missing. It was found with him. Like I said, or his gun yeah, missing. He had a pistol. 
he was shot with was actually a shotgun too. And see, nobody see. found the shotgun. Makes you think that, that certain officials are involved in this. Who knows? <laughs> this is getting interesting. So where was I? Okay. While this theory did not ignore the two holes in the skull, it did fail to explain how Ruth had managed to remove and bury the empty shell, then reload his gun after shooting himself through the head, as we talked about. Blair noted that the conclusion of the Arizona authorities was rejected by many, including Ruth's family and those who held onto the more romantic murdered for the map story. Yeah, this man suicided himself and hid the gun. He's very talented. Suicided himself, didn't die yet. Reloaded his Reloaded, gun. Reloaded, put away, buried the bullet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blair wrote that the National Wire Services picked up the story of Ruth's death and ran it for more than it was worth, possibly seeing the mysterious story of a welcome reprieve. The seeing the story as a welcome reprieve, sorry, from the bleak news that was otherwise typical of the Great Depression. So it might have just been sensationalized because of the depression. You know, people want to sure. hear these these stories. So, um, in other searches for the mine throughout the 20th century, various expeditions and individuals continued to search for the superstitions. Search the superstitions. Sorry for the lost Dutchman mine. One of the most professional and serious-minded efforts was led by Oklahoma City private detective Glenn Magill, who or McGill, sorry who organized multiple expeditions in the late 1960s and early 70s. So that's fairly recent, all things considered, mm-hmm. and claimed on at least two occasions to have identified the location of the mine. So the first time he said, I found the mine. The second time he said, it wasn't that one, I found it here. Later to concede, he was either mistaken or the locations were played out. Leave that, you know, I'll leave that open for you to, to debate yeah. later. Or they were bereft of gold. McGill's adventures were chronicled in the book, The Killer Mountains by Kurt Gentry. One fact against the existence of Lost Dutchman's Mine is that Waltz was a placer miner. While the gold pieces he had were in quartz, the Superstition Mountains were in fact volcanic. Lastly, the alleged mining directions Ruth had were from an 1895 newspaper account. So nobody has the rights, nobody has the same story. Yep. There's different accounts all around. Everybody's using one to account for the other, to talk about this, that, and the other thing. Because that's what we do. And to explain a suicide that wasn't a suicide. Mm -hmm. Magical suicide. Yep. With a zombie. Yep. Only way I can think of, you know, to to suicide yourself, become a zombie, take care of the the, the, uh, hardware, die again, sit down for a second, and and then then get the the, the wildlife to, to, to predate you. I got nothing else. I'm I'm trying my best. I know I'm very trying. Here, coyote. (laughs) I'm dead. Eat up. Anyway. So other deaths and disappearances. There's there's a lot going on here. Since Ruth's death, there have been several other deaths or disappearances in the Superstition Mountains. Some searchers for the mine have disappeared in likely wilderness accidents, of course. It's not to say that it isn't treacherous or anything, but the guy, even with the busted leg, had done stuff like this before. Perhaps he knew what he was doing. The first, bless you. Perhaps, but he went. He went out ill-equipped too. That's stupid. Yeah. Okay, I'll give them that, that. That was stupidity on his part. But it. And there's nothing in the account that says that he left with somebody too. Well, who shot him? And Good then question. took the gun. Good question. 
So as far as other disappearances, on January 1933, a mining electrician named J.A. Tex Bradford of Globe, Arizona, went in search of the Lost Dutchman Mine. By October 1933, he'd been missing for nine months. In his 1945 book about the Lost Dutchman's Mine, Thunder, Thunder God's Gold, Barry Storm, pen name of John Griffith Clemenson, claimed to have narrowly escaped from a mysterious sniper he dubbed Mr. X. Storm further speculated that Adolf Ruth might have been a victim of the same sniper. Well, the timing's about right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, possible. Which means somebody's out there guarding that mine, if that's the case. So, July 3rd, 1947, James A. Cravey, age 62, a retired photographer, was reported missing after he had chartered a helicopter June 19th, 1947, to drop him off in the Superstition Mountains to look for the Lost Dutchman's Mine. Cravey said he would walk out of the mountains on June 28, 1947. In the mid-1940s, the headless remains of prospector James A. Cravey were reportedly discovered in the Superstition Mountains. He allegedly disappeared after setting out to find the Lost Dutchman's Mine. In late November or early December of 2009, now we're getting closer to home here. Mm-hmm. Denver resident Jesse Campen, 35, went missing in the Tonto National Forest. His campsite and car were found abandoned shortly afterward. He was known to have been obsessed with finding the mine for several years and made a previous trip to the area. Cappen's body was found in November of 2012 by a local search and rescue organization wedged into a crevice. The program disappeared, covered the case, mentioning others in the episode The Dutchman's Curse. On July 11, 2010, Utah hikers Curtis Merworth, 49, and Arden Charles, 66, and Malcolm Meeks, 41, went missing in the Superstition Mountains looking for the mine. Merworth had become lost in the same area in 2009, requiring a rescue. On July 19th, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department called off the search for the lost men. They presumably died in the summer heat. In January 2011, three sets of remains believed to be those of the lost men were recovered. Finally. Yep. And that's all I have on disappearances, and I don't know if there's been any since then. But anyway, uh, in 1977, 292 acres, 118 hectares. Hectors, yeah. yeah. Abutted the Tonto National Forest, where set aside as the Lost Dutchman State Park. The park was expanded to 320 acres, or 130 hectares, in 1983. It is easily accessible about 40 miles east of Phoenix, Arizona, Phoenix via U.S. Highway 60, the Superstition Freeway. Hiking and camping are popular activities. There are several paths that go through the brush and cacti. The Short Discovery Trail is a clearer route with other, excuse me, sorry folks. <laughs> it's a clear route with several placards giving the natural history of the area. You know, sorry, I'm on vacation. Want <laughs> <laughs> me to take over next part? Yeah, why don't you take over? I need a breather. Breathe. <sighs> okay. Flood legend. The Pima Indians have detailed, sorry, have a detailed legend about a widespread flood that has similarities to the biblical account of Noah. In this tale, man was cre- cremated by Chirwit Make, the great butterfly, who later became angry because of man's bad behavior. According to Keith Weiser Alexander, Kathy. Sorry, Kathy. How am I getting Keith? 
Oh, so that's Kathy playing his day. It's Kathy. late and their eye, her eyes are looking at a blue screen. Kathy, sorry. When I goes um, left, when I goes right. Weiser Alexander, Curator of Legends of, of America, updated July 2021. The Pima tribe of Arizona say that the father of all men and animals was a butterfly, Chirrut Make, Earthmaker, who fluttered down from the clouds to the blue cliffs in, at the junction of the Verde and Salt Rivers, and from his own sweat made men. As people multiplied, they grew selfish and quarrelsome. So that Chirwit Make was disgusted with this handiwork and resolved to drown them all. But first, he told them in the voice of the North Wind to be honest and live at peace. The prophet, sorry, prophet Suha, who interpreted his voice, was called a fool for listening to the wind. But the next night came the East Wind and repeated the command. He then, but the then added threat that the ruler of heaven would destroy them if they did not reform. But the evil was not all gone. There was one hawk, a devil of the mountains who stole the daughters and slew their sons. One day, while the women were spinning flax and cactus fiber, the men were gathering maize, Hawk descended into the settlement and stole another of Suka's daughters. The patriarch, whose patience had been taxed to its limit, then made a vow to slay the devil. He watched to see what way the, uh, he entered the valley. He silently followed him to the Superstition Mountains. He drugged the cactus wine that his daughter was to serve him. Then when he drank it, Sua emerged from his place in hiding to beat the brains out of the stupefied fiend. Some of the devil's brains were scattered and became seed for other evil, but there was less wickedness in the world after Hook had been disposed than there had been before. Suka taught his people to build adobe houses, dig with shovels, irrigate their land with a weave cloth, avoid wars, but on his death that he foretold them that they would grow arrogant with wealth, covetous the lands of others, and would wage wars for grain. Sorry, for gain. When that time came, there'd be another flood, and one should not, uh, and one not, uh -huh, and not one should be saved, but the bad should vanish. The good would leave the earth and live in the sun. So firmly did the Pims rely on this prophecy that they do not cross the superstition mountains, for there sits Chuitmake, awaiting the culmination of their wickedness to to let loose the earth, the mighty sea that lies damned beneath the range. So Apache legends. Some Apaches believe that the hole leading down to the lower world or hell is located in the Superstition Mountains. Winds blowing from the hell, from the hole are supposed to be the cause of severe death storms in the metropolitan region. English is hard. Yes, it is. One example of the Apache. Sorry, Apache. You go again. <laughs> no, you were saying Appalachian. Mm. You're thinking Apache. You know, I'm going to be <laughs> smacked by my ancestors, but that's okay. Uh, the Apache lower world is found in the creation myth, which deals with the people's emergence from the lower world to the surface. The story, according to NativeAmericanArt.com, is as follows. It is dark in the underworld before the emergence. Dissatisfied, Holy Boy decides there should be light. He tries without success to make the sun and moon using spectacular iron, ore, and pollen. He tries again using many different materials, but it's unsuccessful. Whirlwind, who spies on the on the Hatson, tells Holy Boy that the white Hatson, Hexen, has has the sun. He should get it from him. White Hexen tells Holy Boy that Black Hexen has the moon, and Holy Boy is, is to acquire it as well. The Hexen instruct the Holy Boy, sorry, Holy Boy, in the ritual acts of creating the sun and moon. When the song rituals are complete, the sun and moon rise, bringing light to the underworld. The many medicine people living in the lower world immediately claim responsibility for creating sun and moon, arguing fiercely with each other. The Hexen warn them to be silent for four days, but the medicine people ignore the warning. 
On the fourth day, the sun rises to the center of the sky. Because the medicine people continue to argue, it goes to the hole in the center of the sky to the present earth. Only faint light comes through the lower world. Then Jacaria identify this ancient star, this ancient with solar eclipses. This incident. Sorry, this in, sorry. incident. Sorry. Incident. <laughs> Boy, am I just losing it here. That's this all right. Incident, not ancient, with solar eclipses. The Haxon challenge the boasting medicine people to bring back the sun and moon. The medicine people demonstrate their considerable abilities, but nothing they do brings back the sun or moon. Next, all the birds and animals are challenged to try. Each animal comes forward to offer some kind of food. The Haxon accept all their offerings as useful items, but the sun and moon remain in the world above. Finally, the Haxon direct the representation of in sand, sand painting, of a world bordered by four mountains. The mountains are represented by four different colored piles of sand. Each mountain are placed leaves of the trees and seeds of fruits that will grow upon it. The people sing and pray as the mountains begin to grow. Eventually, the mountains grow together, forming a single mountain. The Haxon chose 12 medicine people, painting and costuming them so that six represent summer and six represent winter. The Haxon chose six more medicine people as clowns. The Jicaria word for clown translate as striped, striped excrement. Mm -hmm. hey, yeah. different, different, different people, different time. The clowns are painted white all over with black stripes across the face, chest, and legs. The hair is formed into two horns, painted white with four black stripes. Jacaria clowns are powerful healers. When the mountain has grown nearly to the sky, fly and spider are sent to the world above. They bring back four rays of the sun, from which the Hexen construct a ladder of 12 steps. Oh, sorry. Yeah, of 12 yeah, steps. 12 steps. Mm -hmm. And we'll send up the letter report the world above is full of water. The Haxon go up to the world and prepare the earth for the others to enter. The emergence proceeds from this point. The clowns first laughing to scare away anything that will cause illness. And the Haxon emerge followed by the first man and first woman. Next come the 12 medicine people, followed by the, all the people and animals. Finally, two old people try to enter the world, but the ladders are now worn out and they cannot climb them. They call for help, but there's no way for them to emerge. The old people angrily proclaim they will remain in the underworld and that those who have emerged uh, must someday return, thus designating the underworld as a place of death. Okay. <clears throat> or a uh, nasty retirement home. Well, you know, <laughs> there, there's the group around and find out, you know? Yeah, but this just lays more claim to the magic of the Superstition Mountains because it's supposedly the opening where the, the people emerged. Yes. I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, let's talk about Charles A. Marco. Um, on a snowy New Year's Eve day in 1957, Charles A. Marco, his wife and his five children, left their Chicago home and set off for Phoenix, Arizona. It was on that drive that he had his first encounter with the Superstition Mountains. From his book, I searched for the portals. He said, for some reason, un for some unknown reason, I decided to take a route through the Salt River Canyon in Arizona. <clears throat> Excuse me. Instead of going by way of Flagstaff, Arizona. This route was winding roads on high mountains, and we occasionally ran into snow on the highway. We stopped for food in Globe, Arizona, before the final last step to Phoenix. As I passed through the, a town called Superior, it was then that I began to sense some form of thought drawing my attention toward those mountains to the west of me. Continuing toward Phoenix, I became extremely attracted to those mountains, and I saw a sign that pointed to them. It was now January 3rd, 1958, 
and I was having my first encounter with the well-known Superstition Mountains. So Marco would spend the next 20 years using much of his free time exploring the Superstition Mountains and other areas of Arizona. His last push to find the Hidden Cavern world began in 1980, when he received a document referred to as the, right, as the White Manuscript, written by Hollow Earth skeptic George D. White. It tells of a week-long exploration of the Blowing Cavern near Cushman, Arkansas, in which White and his companions stumble upon a set of steps several miles below the surface that led to a constructed tunnel that glowed with a luminous green light. Marco moved to Cushman in 1983 and began exploring the cave. On September 1st, 1983, he was attacked by a swarm of yellow jackets near the cave entrance and died from the resulting fatal heart attack. Yeah, so nice. that's got that's got some correlations to what I was talking about with the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. Kind of makes you, if the story was is true in any way, shape, or form, makes you wonder if maybe they're connected in some way. Which I can see, yeah, feasibly. I mm -hmm. mean, I really can see. I mean, steps going down into an underground world lit with a greenish light. Mm -hmm. I think I think both stories are kind of described in the same the way. Same way, yeah. So. On the odd, we'll talk about the blowing cave and shaver mystery here next. One of the odd stories related to inner earth is set in blowing cave near Cushman, Arkansas, where a man named George D. White is said to have found a subterranean civilization and proven the shaver mystery. Though White disappeared, his story survives in a diary he allegedly wrote. In the 1950s, White was a UFO buff from Michigan. There's your UFOs, dear. White knew of Richard Saver. I'm sorry, Richard Shaver's claims published in the 1940s in the Ziff Davis Science Fiction Magazine's Amazing Stories and Fantastic Adventures that the remnants of two advanced races, Taro and Darrow, good and evil respectively, lived in vast caverns under Earth's surface. Though White was skeptical of these claims, he had an interest in cave exploring that he indulged with David L., for whose mimeographed saucer newsletter White contributed a regular column. They did their spelunking with three other men. All of them were acquainted with Charles A. Marco and other columnists for the magazine. Unlike the others, Marco was an obsessed believer in Shaverian concepts to the extent that he gave occasional public lectures on the subject. And Shaver basically was a hollow earth. Uh, he believed in the hollow earth. Theory. Yes. Um, the spelunker sometimes attended those lectures but considered his beliefs absurd. In 1966, the group, now consisting of 12 persons, went down to Arkansas to explore Blowing Cave on a week-long expedition. On their return, members wrote letters to Ray Palmer, once editor of Amazing Stories and Shaver's principal promoter, claiming that they had encountered intelligent beings, Shaver's tarot's, deep inside the cavern. Palmer did not reply. Apparently, a few months later, White went back and chose to stay with the underneath with the under-earth people. He returned in 1967 to give a written account to David L., who by this time had left the UFO field and no longer wanted to be publicly associated with it. White asked L. to pass on the diary to Charles Marco. Yes, not, dear? Not to slight our friends, but there are some really, there are crazy people out there that are, but not all of them are. You know, we've met quite a few and they're not. They're mm -hmm. very down to earth. Right. But I, I can understand why he wouldn't want to be associated with some of them. <laughs> That's all I was going to say. Well, you know, you're in you're in this sort of field. And so it does tend to bring out the crazy sometimes. Yes. Not everybody, but I mean. 
Yep. Sorry, I just wanted to. So, they don't want to use their their complete brain pan. Yes. Right. Right. So White asked Elle to pass on the diary to Charles Markup. White felt that in ridiculing his beliefs, he had wronged him and wanted to provide him with the proof that Shaver was right. He then returned to his tarot friends and has not been seen since. David L., however, had long since lost track of Marco, and it was not until 13 years later that he came upon his name. He tracked him down and handed him the manuscript. Its effect on Marco was electrifying, and it set in motion the events that would eventually lead to his premature death. The manuscript related that while exploring Blowing Cave, the group spotted a light at the end of a tunnel. As the Spelungers approached it, White noticed a narrow crevice, just big enough for him to squeeze inside it. There he found clearly artificial steps. He called to his friends, and they climbed through the opening. On the other side of it, the opening expanded, and they were able to walk upright. Big Excuse me, yawn <laughs> escaped again. Suddenly, White wrote, he came into a large tunnel slash corridor, about 20 feet wide and just as high. All the walls and the floor were smooth, and the ceiling had a curved dome shape. We know that this was not a freak of nature, but man-made. We had accidentally stumbled into the secret cavern world. Soon they encountered blue-skinned but otherwise human-like individuals. The strangers said that they had permitted the crew to find the tunnel and enter it because they had instruments that measured people's emotions. The explorers were determined to have good intentions. Say what you will about that part. Yeah. They learned that the tunnels went on for hundreds of miles and led to under-earth cities populated by entities that included serpent-like creatures and Sasquatch-like hairy bipeds. Soon after their initial conversation, White and his companions were taken to a kind of elevator. Here comes the other one. Sorry. <laughs> taken to you an elevator. No, my eyelids will stay open on their own. Thank you. <laughs> you sure about that? Yes. So they were taken to uh, some kind of elevator that led them to the under-earthers' place of residence, a city made of glass. It turned out that their guides were Noah's direct descendants, who had found their way underground in the wake of the flood. There they found super technology and the remains of an advanced civilization. Along with Taros, apparently at some point, White's group met the Taros who had been there all along. Uh, that didn't make any sense, and I know why. <laughs> and the remains of advanced civilization along with the tarot. Okay, they found the tarot there is what it's saying. Yes. Uh, this was not only this was not the only trip the group took to Blowing Cave. Unable to get anybody on the surface to believe their story, White and his friends vowed to return with conclusive proof. During one expedition, they captured a giant cave moth, preserved it in a bag, and brought it up with them. When they opened the bag, however, the sunlight disintegrated the insect into a fine dust. Not long afterward, White decided to stay with the under-earth people. According to one source, all evidence of his ever-existing began to mysteriously disappear from the surface. Birth certificates, school records, computer records, bank records, etc. all seemed to vanish, apparently the work of someone in a very influential position. Other members of the group made another trip into the cave where they saw their friend for the last time. White returned once to the surface to meet David L. in 1980. Marco saw the manuscript and read White's words addressed to him. Yes, Charles, all that you told us is true. 
I owe you a debt of gratitude because the tarot's healed my crippled leg instantly. I am grateful for more than just that, and I have left these notes. Here I go again. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> left these notes and somewhere a map so that you too can visit with these people. Maybe we will meet them, or maybe we will meet here someday. Marco said about organizing expedition, 46 blowing cave soliciting members in such small circulation hollow earth publications as Shaverton and the hollow hassle. Marco and his wife moved to Cushman in 1983. There in November, as he was visiting the land around the cave, a swarm of bees descended on him. The resulting shock and trauma precipitated a heart attack and he died on the spot. Some hollow earth enthusiasts speculated that sinister forces that wanted to keep the cave a secret had caused the attack. Oh boy, sorry. <laughs> Others thought it was just a tragic accident. I don't mean to do this, folks. It's just late. In any case, Marco's death ended efforts to explore Blowing Cave in search of under earthers. Well, remember, they said, the under earthers said that they had equipment that let them read the intention. Mm -hmm. So maybe his intention wasn't as good as, as he was projecting. So they descended the bees. They're, they're like, you know what? Okay, fine. Security defenses activate. Bring on the bees. Killer swarm of obnoxious bees, yes. Well, there are, there are worse ways to chase people off, I guess. There are. But but yellow jackets are mighty vicious cusses. Oh, yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> Well, I hope that was clear for everybody. I'm not sure because of the, <laughs> the yawning. I'm obviously tired by the end of this. and Just want to make sure that everybody realizes that uh, Superstition Mountains are a spooky, spooky place. Yes. It's easy to get lost. Um, Someday I'd like to go check it out, but I'm not walking anywhere in search of anything other than a trail. And if you go out there, be aware, you might get sniped. <laughs> I don't want to. Or you, or you suicide yourself. Yeah. <laughs> And if for some reason I end up in Arkansas, I do not want to go looking for the, the blowing cave because I do not want to end up triggering killer yellow jackets. Why would you go to Arkansas? Isn't that where it said? Over no, here? Arizona. Arizona? I guess it is in Arkansas. <laughs> you keep going to the east, Appalachians, you know, Arkansas, I all that stuff. That the tunnels were in Arkansas. No, no, they're Arizona. God bless it. <laughs> Superstition Your mountains tired, are in your Arizona. Your brains are oozing. My tired is my brain channel. If it's something said Arkansas, and, and that's where it struck to me after that. I know nothing. I'm just here. You're probably the only one that's safe right now because you didn't say much. <laughs> the rest of us are like, what the heck are we talking about? I'm so tired. I'm sorry. That's okay. No, Blowing Cave near Cushman, Arkansas. Ha! She was right. Okay. <laughs> I said I was tired. <laughs> I found it. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could tell a story and talk about the Lost Dutchman, bring in the Apache legends and all that stuff too. Kind of give a history of the place. No, 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 no electrodes. Thank you very much. I'm fine. <laughs> okay, that's these aren't electrodes, but okay. Those are prongs. The prongs are electrodes. Uh, Adri's about to hit me with a with a shock collar, so Come here. hit me with her best shock. <laughs> Come here. Terrible. <laughs> yes, I know, groan. Pat Benatar would groan. I think. We were groaning about the dad jokes on uh, the sh uh, all the dad jokes. Hit the brakes! The train's derailing again. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm exhausted. What do you expect? I'm just not yawning. It doesn't help that we have to do this after I've had a full day of work, and you normally have a full day of work, and then we and I had a full day of everywhere for the last two days with you, the kid. You've been running, so yeah. Therefore, we're tired this week. That's we're true. punch drunk tonight. I shouldn't be because I've been on vacation. The problem is, and during that whole vacation time, I've had almost no sleep. Because that's what happens. Because that's what happens. You got so much to do while you're off work and no sleep. Anyway, I think that's going to cover it for tonight. Uh, Again, folks, hope you enjoy our new logo. Um, Oh. Hope that you also. (laughs) Did you just. You did, didn't you? Poor dog. (laughs) Adrian, quit playing with the shot collar. You're going to give us a bad name. It's a buzz. It's a buzz. It was yeah, she buzzing. buzzed her, but still. She got scared because I startled her. Of course her. she got scared. I didn't do it. I'm testing to see well, if at it least works. it works. Okay, but still. <laughs> anyway, folks. Okay, I'm in the meantime, make between time. Don't hate us. We're not shocking the dogs. It's just it's just the buzz for the attention getter. That's all we really want to and do. And the beeps. We've got beeps. And we're <clears> just trying to figure out yes. how to get them to stop barking so much. There are palms, and palms are palms are burgers. Yes, they are definitely workers. But anyway, once again, hope you enjoyed the logo. <laughs> hope, hope you enjoyed keep, the show. Hope you enjoy the show. Hope you keep coming back. Again, our merch is available on, Redbu- on redbubble.com. Uh, I left a link in our group page on Facebook, the What in the Podcast Facebook group. Uh, feel free to go there, click the link, see what we got. There's a, I, I, There's like 91 different items available right now for purchase. Everything from the lowliest sticker to the biggest tapestry. Yep, yep. Mini skirts. Why you want that logo on a mini skirt, I don't know. Put it on my ever-expanding tuchus. You could, but it's on the front. No, you have options of putting it at the back or the I front. guess you could put it on the back, yeah. Because that's how come I'm, when I get my sweatshirt in a few weeks of the, you know, be adult and responsible, I'm going to get the logo on the back. So people can watch your butt as you walk away. No, so when I'm working back, she's at my Saturday job, if people come in and see me wandering around the floor trying to take care of costumes, they can go, oh, lucky. And I go, yep, that's me. Yep. Okay. I'm looking forward to getting one myself. I like the design. Me too. I really like the design. I'll, you I, know what? I, I I'm biased. I like all of your work. I love your I, I gotta be shirt. honest. How long has it been since I actually did a design? Way too long. I, I, I don't think I've actually really since drawn before anything we start, since... It was before we started the podcast. Yeah. You haven't drawn or done, much, done much artistically. So this this was actually a big thing for me to do. So yes. I'm, I'm glad that I had it. and I'm glad I had your support, Adri. And I'm uh, sure I had Tracy's if, if she knew on, I had it. Oh, you didn't hear me squeeing when you started showing me the pictures across the, the Facebook feed. Oh, I heard you squeeing. It was <laughs> in how, it was it was in how you posted it. And my parents going, what is going on? Because I was hanging out with my parents for a bit last night because I had to help them with stuff. And, and they get, what? What? And my father looking going, are you sure that's you? Yes, Daddy. See the, the bangs? See the, the white and the bangs? <laughs> and the headband? That's me. The glasses will... That one's got long hair. I said, yes, but Adrian's hair is longer than mine. It's funny, it's funny you said that because my mother ways. said it. My mother said, I love the picture. And I could tell it was you and, and Adri when she was talking about me. She <laughs> know who you were, of course. But well, I don't think you. I've met your mother. No. If I have, it's been, you know, years, <laughs> decades. No, I don't think you've ever met my mother. I mean, I'd love to meet your mother. Okay. Anyway. Anyway, we keep her all. Yay! Again. <laughs> Hit the brakes. Anyway. We've BS long enough. <laughs> Folks, have a good night. <laughs>
Come back again and see us again for our next episode. And until that time, stay spooky. And for everybody, cue the gremlin. What in the Podcast is a part of the What in the Podcast Network and is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other great podcast formats. You can find us on Facebook at the What in the Podcast Facebook group. If you have a great story idea or have a personal paranormal event that you want to share with us, email us at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com with your story, or you can leave us a voice message by clicking the link in the episode description. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to leave us a review and rate us five stars. It doesn't seem like much, but it helps us more than you can imagine. What in the Podcast is also made possible thanks to our sponsors and listeners like you. Thanks for listening.